Hello, welcome to Loving Susan, a podcast full of helpful ideas for those who love someone with a mental illness, such as depression, anxiety disorder, OCD, PTSD, BPD, bipolar, or schizophrenia. From Alexandra Georges, author of Mom and Me, My Journey with Mom Schizophrenia. Welcome to our show. Hello, welcome. I'm Alexandra, also known as Sandy, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. This is my very first podcast. I'm very excited to be here and to do this. Um, I'm going to be talking through the weeks on how to love someone with a mental illness and also love yourself. I learned all this by loving Susan, my mom, who had schizophrenia. I've spent most of my life learning how to care for her and also how to care for me and where that balance might be. Definitely not an easy thing. I'm also a teacher of a class called Family to Family. It's put on by the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMNI. It's a great class. It's an eight-week class, one night a week. And in the class, we cover communication, problem solving, medications, how the brain works. It is so good. I've watched people come the first week angry, stressed, sad, worn out, and we walk through this material and walk side by side with them. At the end of the class, they have more peace and more insight and more tools to help them to cope. It's it's really great and it's free. It's paid for by the people who donate to Nomni. So my first word of advice to you is go take that class. I also speak for Nomni. I go into a behavior health wing and tell my story to people who are uh, in the hospital, as well as let them know about the resources available to them from Nomni when they're discharged, which I'll be telling you about also as we go through these podcasts. But I also learned a ton by writing my book, Mom and Me, My Journey with Mom Schizophrenia. That was very therapeutic for me to get my story on, on the page. But also I read a lot in writing that book about her illness so that I could have greater insight in, boy, oh boy, did it ever give me insight. I developed a lot more understanding of her and what she was going through, and it gave me a lot more sympathy and compassion for her. So I will be sharing all of that through these podcasts with you. Today, I thought it would be good for you to learn about me and kind of who I am. So I'm going to tell you my story of what I went through with my mom. When my mom... When I was a young girl, my mother was beautiful. I mean, really pretty. People said she looked like Elizabeth Taylor. And younger people are like, who's that? (laughs) But very beautiful woman. Um, And she was loving, just really loving. Um, We would be driving in the car together and she would look to me and smile and sing, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. Oh boy, did I feel loved. My mom said I was her sunshine. I mean, I really took that in. And I had little Barbies and she sewed clothes for my Barbies and she sewed clothes for me and she was always doing creative, loving things. She was giving to people in our family as well. Very, very, very generous, very kind-hearted. So we were close. Then my mom had to have a hysterectomy in her younger 30s. And after that, some things started changing in her. And this, the research shows that there seems to be some sort of link often of estrogen with schizophrenia in women. 
what they what they've discovered is that estrogen can mask schizophrenia. It it kind of protects a person from the symptoms. So she probably always had it, but it wasn't until the the hysterectomy that it started to show up. And they think that that there's some link there that is why women sh tend to show schizophrenia later than men and why postmenopausal women will all of a sudden get schizophrenia. And they've tried giving estrogen to women as a treatment and found that in the short run it helped, but in the long run they tended to do a lot worse. So that's not a protocol that's used. Unfortunately, we don't have that easy answer. Definitely not for mental illness or schizophrenia. But after that hysterectomy, um, I think is when it started showing up. And the first time we saw something was the, in 1970, I'm 10, mom's uh, 34. And my dad planned this big trip out west to see everything, a three week trip. So he loaded us in the station wagon with the wood grain fake paneling on the side. And we sat, me and my brother, in the back and the way back. And we drove and drove and drove and drove and drove for a day and a half. And we arrived at the Corn Palace in South Dakota. Have you been to the Corn Palace? <laughs> Have you heard of the Corn Palace? <laughs> well, anyway, this was my, my recollection of it is you get out of the car and we walk inside and it's like a gym and there's just selling touristy stuff and it wasn't exactly fun. And then you go on the outside, you look at it, and they have a mural made out of Indian corn. And Neil Armstrong had just walked on the moon the year before, so they had the moon unit there on the corn palace. And Neil Armstrong's face in corn. I looked at my dad, I said, really, Dad? We drove a day and a half in the car to see this? He goes, yes, this is American history <laughs> and corn. <laughs> It's so hilarious, but I think it's still a great memory because it's just so funny that dad took us to this cheesy, goofy place, which I recommend you go to. I think it's a fun, fun thing to do. Although as a kid, I didn't really get it. Okay. And then we went on to the Badlands and Yellowstone and Nevada and California and Arizona. I mean, my dad took us everywhere. Why that trip was important is there were many days on that trip when my mother would not leave the motel room. She said, I don't feel well, I just need to stay here. And what we'd ask dad say, what's, what's wrong? I just don't feel well. That's all she could say. So that was odd and not like her at all. And it continued when we got back home. On and off, some days fine, some days I don't feel well. I remember seeing her on our living room sofa in her turquoise blue house coat that she wore around her loungewear, sitting there doing nothing, just staring into space with like a glossy look on her eyes. I said to her, Mom, are you okay? She said, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. I was worried, though. There was something wrong. My father was worried, too. And he ended up taking her to Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, you know, world-renowned place, to try to get down to the bottom of it. They came back without a diagnosis. They did not know. And that's some of the difficulty with mental illness is we don't have biomarkers. We don't have good tests that you can run to show what's happening. I so wish we would get to that point where we will have them.
but we don't have the blood test or the brain scan or the neurotransmitter measurement that can really quickly identify, ah, you've got this illness, and we so need that. So it often does go undiagnosed for quite a long time. I'm sure if you love someone with a mental illness, you've probably gone through that as well. Um, after about three years, mom changed. Oh, and yes, what I also know is that that was actually what we call the prodomal stage of schizophrenia. And in about 75% of cases, it starts as a slow mounting depression that lasts about three or four years. And that's what was happening with her. It was, this, it was like beginning to show and it lasted three years. And then like a switch, she became like a different person. And she told me that my dad was in the mafia and having an affair. Now my dad was a school teacher and I can just tell you right here, he was not nearly that exciting. I mean, he took us to a corn palace, you know, for fun. Um, so I knew that that was not my dad. I mean, it was obvious to all of us that mom was thinking something that wasn't true. However, she couldn't be convinced. And she told me that there were cameras watching us and the phones were bugged. And and then as time went on, her delusions got weirder and weirder and more more out there and I tried to believe them because I wanted her to be her but then there was a part of me that was mature enough to know this is probably not true like I remember opening up a phone and saying look mom there's no bug in there so I knew it couldn't be true but I was loyal to her because we were close uh, finally my brother sat me down and helped me see that these things just couldn't be true and you know he was four years older than me and he got through to me and I realized yeah he's right and then I really felt disturbed because why would mom say these things? Why would she think these things? You know, and nobody had answers. We had no idea. Well, she was so convinced she decided to go ahead and divorce my dad. So she did. And my dad didn't know what to do. And he didn't have anyone really to help him. You know, we didn't have a nominee anywhere in the world back then. Uh, he, he, he was really at a loss. So, you know, what, what could he do? He couldn't tie her down and make her stay. So they, they got divorced and my parents decided that my mother should have custody of me. That was definitely a mistake on their part. Uh, a untreated person with a serious mental illness is probably not going to be able to parent well. And, um, but they didn't know they did their best, you know, and it all worked out for the good in my life, I feel, even so. I mean, I, I do things like this now because of what I went through. So I make, it's, it's okay, I'm at peace with it. But, but I got to be alone with my mom who was delusional and uh, her and I moved out into an apartment. And then she started telling me she was hearing voices, which is also a very classic signal or uh, symptom of schizophrenia. And uh, poor lady, I, I can't imagine how scary that would be to hear voices. So here I am, 14 years old, living alone with a lady who looks like my mom, but the things she's saying, that is not my mom. And she was not really able to tend well to me because she was so distracted by the voices and the delusions and all that. Um, I tried convincing her that they weren't true by screaming, yelling, crying, <laughs> logic. I tried a lot of things and not one single one made any difference at all because her brain was giving her these signals. And why would she think her brain's not telling her the truth, right? <clears throat> we all trust our own brain. 
although I do less and less the older I get, but you know. Uh, so I gave up and I got real frustrated. And one thing that helped me tremendously is I would go in my room, shut the door and just get on my knees and go, Oh God, I can't take this anymore. I can't take it. And I just cry out my heart to God and, and just pour out my feelings to him. And I said, God, I, I can't deal with this. I need your strength. I need your help. I can't love her. I need you to help me to love her. And I really felt I received a peace through those prayers and a strength and an ability to love. And I did absolutely learn to love her. And I did learn to have peace and strength. I learned it through my whole lifetime. So I definitely got the answer to those prayers. So that's my second lesson to you is consider prayer as a way for you to get more peace in your own life and to get more strength and joy and love. It's, I found it personally really helped me to lean on God through prayer. So I will recommend that for you. Um, I got kind of numb because I couldn't get upset every single day after a while. So I just like stopped getting upset about anything because I, I just couldn't. And I, a lot of people I talk to with loved ones with mental illness go get to that point too, where you just can't get upset anymore. You just let it have to just say, oh, it's just another day of the same. <laughs> um, and when I was around 15, I decided that I looked at her and I said, you know, I'm actually more capable of being a parent to myself than she is because I don't have a mental illness. So I emotionally kind of divorced from her and took, I, I separated from her and I got a job and I started buying my own clothes and making my own food and feeling like I was like an independent little young adult is the way I looked at it. Is I said, that's just my roommate. That's not my mother. And that's how I coped. Independence is a real great strength for kids of a, with a parent with mental illness. And it really did help me a lot to be okay and take care of myself. Um, and then um, when I was 16, I came home from work at two in the morning one night, real late, and she wasn't there. Now that was not like her. She was always there. She might not have been stable, but she was always there. I was so numb. I just went to bed. The next morning I wake up, she's still not there. I thought, well, now that's unusual. It was my day to go visit my dad. I called him up, said, dad, you got to come pick me up today. He said, well, why doesn't your mother bring you? I said, cause she's not here. And he says, well, where is she? I said, dad, I don't know. I came home and she wasn't here. And he said, that's it. You're moving in with me. And I was so happy inside. Because I really want to live with him. I love that man. And I, I knew he loved me. And I knew I needed him. But I also knew that my mom had no one. She was really alone in the world. And I felt if I left, she would fall apart. So I wasn't going to leave because I felt like I had to take care of her. But I, So I was very thankful my dad took charge and he made the decision. And so that day, I packed up my stuff in like one hour and moved in with my dad a week later my mother called me and she had returned she went on vacation with her boyfriend to florida and left her minor child at home without food money or a note <laughs> the, the mother of my childhood would have never done that ever she was always there for me but that's what mental illness can do it can take a very good parent and turn them into a not very good parent um, she wanted me to come back and live with her. And I said, no, mom, I really think I need to stay here with dad. And that was really tough, but I did it. 
So she started soothing with alcohol. And she had never been a drinker, but then she started to drink. And about a month after that, she overdosed on alcohol. And they found her out in the street, drunk, not knowing what she was doing. I went to her apartment to get her some clothes, and I saw the residue. There were just gallons and gallons of liquor she had to drink. There were so many empty bottles everywhere. I couldn't believe it. The poor lady just, just tried to completely pass out with liquor. I mean, we're talking about many bottles of wine. Many bottles. Uh, my grandparents, her parents, um, stepped in at this point and paid for her to get into an alcohol rehab center, a really good one. But back then, this is 1976, the mental health community had different paths for alcoholism than for mental illness. Well, now it's a dual path. We call it dual diagnosis. We would treat her together, the alcoholism and the mental illness, um, or drug addiction and mental illness. It's treated together, which is much more effective. But they didn't know that back then, or they didn't do it that way back then. So she was only getting treatment for alcoholism. And they, they did help her. She did get clean and she got a lot better, but she still was hearing voices and having delusions. So wasn't getting medication for schizophrenia. So she was struggling to keep a job. She would try to work and then she quit because she thought people were trying to kill her at the office. So, and then my dad wasn't paying her child support anymore. So she was going through her savings. And then she kind of involved with a guy who was a gambler and she didn't stand up to him too well and let him have money. And he gambled away her money. Then she really felt like she was at the end of her world. And so she decided to kill herself. She jumped off her balcony and somehow her arm got caught on the balcony below hers. I guess there were like spikes going up and it went into her arm, poor lady. And so she's dangling from the balcony. Oh, poor woman, that's just so painful. And uh, at least she survived. And she was put into a mental institution after she got stitches. And the social worker called my brother and I in. So we went in to talk to the social worker and she said, your mother has paranoid schizophrenia. I was like, yes, thank you for giving me a, a name for this thing. It was nine years after the Corn Palace, the depression, and six years after the mafia, you know, after the six years after really obvious mental illness before we got a name for it really long now even though that was way back in the 70s we're not that much better today people are still taking years before they get a diagnosis and there's a lot of reasons for that and we're going to talk I'm going to talk about that as we go through the podcast of how to reduce that time and get to that diagnosis more quickly and that class family to family will help you with that as well by the way so Unfortunately, it's more common than we wish it was. Um, and then they told us that they really believed that she was not stable and that, but they were, they had to let her go because she's there and she's there on their own free will, but that she really believes that she would try to kill herself again. Well, nowadays, I don't think they would have done that because if someone's a danger to themselves, we do, we, we are able to hold them in the hospital. But apparently in 1979 at this particular place, they didn't think they could. So they released her and sure enough, a couple months later, she did try again. She jumped off that balcony again. This time she landed on the earth. She broke her leg, her hip, and fractured four ribs, but she lived. 
I went and saw her at the hospital right after she it happened, and she's all got dirt and grass on her. And I took her hand and I looked her in the eye and I said, Mom, I'm so glad you're here because I love you. I'm just so glad you're here. That's all I, I just shook, took, held her hand and just kept looking in her eyes and gave her love. And she stared right back at me, didn't say a word. She might have been pretty full of pain meds at the point. Her boyfriend came and he stood on the other side of the table and said to her, Susie, Susie, why'd you do that? Why'd you do that, Susie? She looked at him. She didn't say a word. She looked back at me and just kept staring at me. And he got frustrated and he stomped off. I was so glad he left. And uh, after about 20 minutes, she said to me, is he still there? I said, no, mom, he's gone. It's, it's just me. I'm here for you. It's okay. It's going to be okay. And while that was such a dark, painful time, I mean, gosh, you know, she tried to end her life. She had no money. It was pretty bad. It was the turning point for her. She actually started getting better after that point. I think what that did for her is she realized she couldn't handle this. This illness was bigger than her. And she needed help. And she let people help her. And the, uh, the mental health community was there for her, helped her find medication that would work for her. And she accepted it and took meds. And they gave her a place to stay, which gave her support and help instead of having her trying to support herself on her own. So really, it really, it was the beginning of the more positive, brighter years for her. So keep that in mind as you go through some of the hard, hard things you're going to that you may be going through with your loved one. I know there's some, I hear stories. I mean, I know some of the really, really difficult things people have to go through with these illnesses are just really, really hard. It may not stay that way. Uh, people often do get better. Life does settle down. It, they do find their path. So, um, and schizophrenia is a highly treatable illness. And many people get a lot better from schizophrenia, which is a very difficult illness. So just know that there's hope. And um, I know it's hard to even have hope when you've had a lot of struggles. But hearing the stories of recovery, like, like hers and mine, hopefully it helps you a little bit with that. And maybe you want, you want to listen to more of those. Uh, she, she did get better. She got on meds took a while and then the mental institution wanted to place her in a place which would be a good place for her to live in well they tried a halfway house in the city and well that wasn't so good her roommate was like an ex-con so she didn't feel safe there and then they put her in a place that was like a convent and she would um she had a beautiful little room and she would do mending for all the nuns and so she had a job but it was very lonely for her she wasn't really a nun type person, <laughs> not my mom. So she decided to go, to go out on Saturday nights and pick up men at the bar. Well, let's just say the nuns weren't too excited about that. So she got shipped back to the mental institution. Then they finally placed her at this really nice nursing home, beautiful place. The governor of our state's mother was in there. So, you know, he had, had to be a good one if, if a politician's mom is in there. I thought it was pretty good, but she was not happy. I went to this little small church at the time and I went to a Sunday night service, very informal. 
And the minister said, well, does anybody have any prayer requests tonight? I raised my hand. I said, yes, I do. My mom is never happy anywhere she's in. We've been, it's just been a struggle finding a good place for her to be. Can you just pray? She, she finds a place and stays there and is happy. They said, sure. So they prayed for her. That was in 1983. And she lived at that nursing home for 33 years until she passed away at 80 years old in her sleep, in peace, and no pain. That's right. I sat, I definitely got an answer to prayer that day. See, believe in prayer, my friends. Prayer does make a difference. That's your, that's your lesson. Don't miss it. Um, so she did get better. I would say the last 20 years of her life, I never heard her say a delusional thing. Because schizophrenia also tends to go to this third stage called the residual stage. It sort of self-corrects on its own. This is even not necessarily from the meds. It's just the body itself, the brain itself. Um, however, some of the symptoms were still there and that, that's common. Um, that they call them the negative symptoms. So things that are taken away from them like gumption and they call it flat affect. It's like flat affect. So sometimes she didn't get real excited about stuff. So it kind of seemed a little numb. That was always still with her. But the hearing voices, the delusions, those were gone. And then I was able to really have a, a really good, loving relationship with her. Oh, but it took a while for me to get there because I was still very affected by all those the suicide attempts and all that I'd been through. I was very much affected by these things. And so in my 20s, I felt obligated to take care of her. So while other girls were off finding husbands and getting families and doing normal things like that, I was dating my mother. I was spending every other Saturday, all day, all night with her, taking her shopping, entertaining her, taking her to dinner, doing whatever she wanted, not really tending to me. I was overgetting, and she wouldn't leave her nursing home without me. She just, she's like, I need her, I need her, you know, clinging really hard to me. And then I realized when I was about 29 that this was really unhealthy for her and for me and that I was codependent. I was dependent on her illness. I was, my whole world was about her illness. I knew I needed help changing. So I found a really good therapist, a fantastic therapist. And I went and I got her coaching and she helped me to you know, break up with my mom and to not spend so much time with her and spend more time thinking about what I needed and what was important for me. And I started doing the things I kind of missed out in high school, like I'm a musician and I write songs and I, I never did anything with it in high school. So I went out and learned to play in coffee houses and restaurants and I really enjoyed that. I joined a softball league and played softball, something I always wanted to do. By the way, I was not very good at it, but I don't know. I wanted to do it for some reason. You know, and I got, I started dating and I found a wonderful man and got married. What that did for my mom is it helped her get more confidence because she learned to, to go leave her nursing home without me and she was fine. She was able to do that. And she got more family because I married and had a family and she got more people to love her. So I helped her more by having my own life, my own fulfilled life, rather than putting it aside and doing nothing but tending to her. And that does help our loved ones. Overgiving does not help them. And being overly involved does not help them. And that's hard, I know, but it is good for them and good for you. So we both recovered. Um, her and I both got a lot better and people can. And that's my story of hope for you. 
with your loved one and come back again next week. I'll talk more and hopefully help you with your life. And by all means, drop me a line. I'd love to hear from you. Um, email me at G-E-O-R-G-A-S, as in Sam, at Comcast.net. My last name is Georges. It rhymes with gorgeous. Thank goodness. And uh, I'll definitely answer you if you, if you email me. And um, with that, I wish and hope and pray blessings and peace to you and to your family. Take care. Bye-bye.